0: This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Super excited for today's guest, Logan Aldridge. Logan is the founder and director of training at the Adaptive Training Academy. He has an incredible story and I'm so excited for you to hear it. Logan sustained a traumatic boating accident during competitive wakeboard training at the age of 13. And as a result, his left arm was amputated above the elbow. He quickly adopted a motto and mindset that it's just an arm. Logan has since competed in sports from the collegiate level all the way to representing Team USA in multiple Paralympic events. He is a workout programmer and coach for Wheel Wad and is the reigning world's fittest upper extremity adaptive
1: athlete. Welcome to the resilient life, Logan. Thank you so much, Ryan. It is an honor to be here. And I have to say, I appreciate you saying that bio makes me sound way cooler than I really am. Uh, And I have listened to multiple episodes. And uh, again, it's an honor because I definitely think I'm the least qualified to be on here. Uh, But without a doubt, it is a privilege. And I'm so thankful to have this opportunity. So thank you, Ryan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's kind of crazy. I you know, I want to start off by by talking about your accident because it's certainly where what led you to where you are today and um I'll preface it by saying, you know, your parents were competitive skiers and at a young age you were already on the path to becoming a competitive wakeboarder. And then at age 13, you have an accident. And I want to hear more about that, but I will say this this hit me because you'll share with the audience what happened, but this summer um, we got into wakeboarding with my kids and nice. so I have a 14 year old daughter who is a super athlete and she's just very natural and she picks everything up really easily and she was she was awesome out there and um, and then we get you as a guest on the show and I'm talking through with my husband what happened and we were just kind of blown away by you know you're out there on the water and, and certainly you're being safe and you're being cautious, but there's such an adrenaline rush, not only for the person that's out there on the wakeboard, but also for everybody that's like watching them. And, you know, just to think what you went through, it was like kind of this weight, like, wow, you know, it, it, things can change in, in the blink of an eye. So, um, so tell us about that day. Walk us through that yeah. day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm a bit of a talker. So Ryan, you just like wave your hand when you're like, all right, Logan, you have talked way too much. We get it. We understand what happened. Um, but yeah, to, to give you a little context, yeah. 13 year old kid, scrawny little 13 year old kid, uh, to give you some context who I was before that, uh, I was the, the, I guess you would say kind of rebellious young kid. I spent most of my time obsessed with wakeboarding, of course, but also just extreme sports. I loved the idea of the X games. I loved skateboarding and snowboarding. When I wasn't in the summer at the lake, I was always on the mountains snowboarding or at the beach surfing. Uh, That was just what I fell in love with. So yeah, this day was a typical training day. It wasn't, you know, even at the young age of 13, most people perceive that as, oh, you were out there wakeboarding and having fun and wrapping up the day. Uh, It was very serious. Like I took it very seriously. Uh, I think I'd always been that way at heart, quite competitive. Uh, and had an older brother that I was trying to, like, impress and show off and, and be better than. So um, I was with a friend of mine who was a few years older as well, much more experienced at wakeboarding. And he was kind of my training partner. He lived, like, five docks down from me. Uh, and, again, to give you some context here, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, this was at our lake house, which was at Lake Gaston, which is right on the border of North Carolina, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit away from Raleigh, but not very far at all. Uh, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, it's all just like farms and country around it. But, uh, we were just finishing up a day and dropped my friend off at his dock as we pushed off his dock. And I said, all right, man, I'll see you in the morning for the next session. It was always my job to tidy up the boat. My mom and dad are on the boat and actually a couple of their family friends are staying with us for the weekend. And I start tidying up the boat, like putting away the life jackets. And then I go to pull in the rope. And if you're familiar with wakeboard boats, they typically have a tower that goes over about the center of the boat. And that's where you anchor the rope. Yeah. So with the rope being anchored there, as we just dropped off a friend, that he's, as he finished his set, we pushed off the dock and just put the boat in gear, just enough to put along so that we could go just maybe 100 yards to our dock. Um, about halfway through that distance, I started winding up the rope, just as I do every single day, using that over-the-thumb-under-the-elbow technique, that we might use for, you know, extension cords or ropes and things of that nature to make a nice neat circle. Mm -hmm. So I had one or two loops around my left arm at that 90 degree angle L shape over the thumb under the elbow. And this rope specifically uh, with wakeboarding, you don't want elasticity in your rope In skiing you do Uh, for wakeboarding, you want none of that. So this rope specifically was actually coated in plastic and very thin. So it literally looked and acted very much like a cable. Um, And so these immediate moments where I had the rope wrapped around my arm, I looked back as you do kind of seeing where the rope is in the water and noticed that a portion of the rope had kind of drifted underneath the back platform of our wakeboard boat. And again, I really wasn't that alarmed at the moment because wakeboard boats, most of the time, the motor is very up underneath the boat and inboard motor. So it happens when you're a bit careless. Sometimes it drifts underneath the back and there's a wedge back there. It might get caught on. Um, But I didn't in my mind at all think, oh, this is getting caught in the propeller. I thought it might just be snagged on some back piece of the platform. So I just turned to my dad nonchalantly and said, oh, dad, rope's underneath the boat again. And just as I said those words, he turned to the ignition to turn off the boat just to be safe so I could jump in there and untangle it. But as soon as he turned to the ignition, the propeller did catch the rope. The rope was more underneath the boat than we realized, than I realized and it caught the propeller. And again, we're just putting along. We're not going fast, we're not going 20 miles an hour, but that thing is spinning at high revolutions just for us to be putting. And um, it coiled that rope instantly around the propeller. And in doing so, as you can imagine, with the other end of the rope, not in my hand, but connected to the tower, and me just having a few loops in between, that tension point of the propeller, it just immediately was a, a, a strong force. It didn't pull me off of the boat. I was still standing on the back of the boat, but strong force. And I felt it slip off of my thumb. And I just felt a really fast, instant, tight tourniquet around my upper arm, above the elbow, around my bicep and tricep. And that's all it was. It was a really tight pressure, tourniquet feeling, and then a release. And that was it. That was the the moment. And so that happened. And I'm standing, still standing there, and my arm is just kind of just relaxed kind of out in front of me. And I look at my arm and where the rope was tight around my arm. And I notice that you can't even see the sort of lacerations that it had caused on my skin. It literally looks as if the rope is just going in the inside of my arm and just coming out the other side. Cause it was kind of not to get too graphic, but I do like to paint an appropriate picture. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the idea of like, wrapping fishing line around a stick of butter and then pulling it and how it will just slice through. So like there was not much resistance and, uh, you couldn't even see the immediate laceration because it sliced so cleanly through down to the bone. Um, it didn't rip my arm off. It just down to the bone. So I'm just resting there. My mother, you know, recognizing something had just happened, states to my dad, uh, Wesley, his arm. And so my father just steps over. He's only about five feet from me. He just steps over and, and goes to unwind that rope from my arm. Mm. Um, as soon as he does that, uh, goodness gracious. I mean, we had a 23-foot white whiteboard boat. Uh, and as soon as he did that, like the whole boat turned red. It was oh fascinating God. to witness just because um, that artery was immediately severed. And so as soon as he undid it, I mean, it was like, like hindsight, looking back, you know, it was a lot like the movie 300, a lot like some ridiculous Quentin Tarantino movies where you literally just see blood flying. Um, That's what happened. And uh, again, not to be too graphic, but it was just, it really was shocking to me, not the injury, but the amount of blood that could leave my body that fast. I had no idea. Um, So as soon as my dad unwound that huge spray of blood, the whole boat's red, uh, he rips off his shirt, you know, wraps it around, tourniquet immediately. Had he not done that, I'd I'd have been dead in a few minutes for yeah. sure. i shock a and and bled out because that artery was uh, was clean, cleanly severed. Um, so thank goodness for the tight tourniquet. But we then get to our dock. We are kind of in shock. Yeah. What? So
0: what's your? I mean, I'm trying. I'm I'm putting myself in your mother's shoes at this point. Yeah. Like. Yeah. What? What? Your dad's? You know he ties the tourniquet. He's trying to take action. Like what's your mom doing? Because I always like to think in this situation that I would like, I would step into action, but I also have that fear that I'd be the one that was just like standing next to my, like screaming and freaking out. I mean, what, what's happening? I mean, there's other people on that boat. What, what is the temperature on that boat? Is everybody, is it loud? Is it quiet? Um,
1: That's a great question. In in that spur of the moment, when it happened, you could still see my friend's dock that we had just left. Mm -hmm. You could actually, he was walking up his stairs. The terrifying scream that came from the boat was not from my voice. It was my mom's because she saw something very serious happen. Yeah, Uh, I'm a 13-year-old, naive, rebellious punk kid who just felt something like jerk my arm. And I was like, what the hell was that? I didn't think anything of it. My mom is one who reacted in a way that caused my friend walking up the dock to turn around, witness the unwinding, witness the bloodshed, and then scream himself to say, what is going on? And then she yells to him, go call an ambulance. So my mom's state in the instance was definitely terror. It was, yeah. she was She was terrified. Um, my father's was the opposite. And that's a good summary of who they are as individuals. My dad's always the more quiet, relaxed, calm one. Uh my mom's typically very energetic and passionate and and has quite an attitude a lot of times. But she was (laughs) fired up at this unforeseen instant, as I'm sure any parent should be. Right. Um, and we were confused. Like we didn't as you know, owning a lake house on this lake, and if you really look at the scenario we were in, the answer, like the next step was very clear. It should have been very clear. Get to the dock, get to the car, drive to a trauma one level hospital. Right. Which was UNC Children's Hospital, which would have been an hour and a half away. But instead, for some reason, in the state of shock, in the moment of the unknown unfolding in front of you, it was a fear of what do we do? Where do we go? What What is the right thing to do right now? I, you know, as we get to our dock, I remember this vividly. There were some like bass fishermen in their little bass boat near our dock. And obviously, you know, as we, as the accident happened and we got closer, they realized something was going on on our boat. Yeah. Um, And my parents are turning to them saying like, where's the closest hospital? Like, we don't even know. Like, you know, we're an hour and a half away from Raleigh. Like, should we go there? Or is there a closer one? And they're like, oh no, there's one like right up the road here in Virginia. So my friend has already called the ambulance. These neighborhoods around these lakes are just country roads. Mm -hmm. And so we have an address and that's good and all, but family, friends and friends of friends and neighbors are getting in their cars, driving to corners so that they can signal the ambulance of where exactly to go because cell phone signal is spotty and it's just a really difficult place to navigate often. Um, So that was all happening and my decision was to wait. I wanted to wait. Well, first before before I explain that, I didn't think this was real. I thought this was all just a bad dream. It was just a nightmare. It was like a really, really bad, very vivid dream we've all had those, you know, you you wake up from a dream and you're like, I swear that was real. I need to call my friend and tell him about that thing that happened. And it was all a dream. So in my mind, I'm playing that scenario. I'm like, Oh my God, this is the craziest dream I've ever had. And as my dad carries me from the boat, once we get to the dock, I remember asking him, I said, dad, just would you, would you please just bring me to my bed? Um, because I'm trying to wake up, but I can't wake up. And if I see myself, I bet it'll trigger me to wake up from this nightmare. And he was just like, Logan, I'm so sorry. This is, this is real, but I will bring you to your room. I'll show you. And so he did. Um, He showed me my bed and it wasn't like a, I didn't freak out. I just saw the bed and I just took a deep breath and looked at my arm. And just in my head, just accepted the reality and started to think about the possible outcomes.
0: So you looked it, at your injury because it's interesting. You know, I have um, actually one of my friends who I had on the, the podcast, uh, Rob Jones, um, he lost both his legs above the knee in a, a, a IED attack in, um, while serving as a Marine. And um, he didn't look. And we talked about that, and I think it's probably something you know. You're 13, so there's you know they're almost trained to like this is what you do when you get into a situation where there's shock involved, and and he didn't look because it was like he knew that if he looked that um, that could send him into a bad place. I, I imagine that most 13 year olds are probably like, what's happening, you know, and um, so you look and and. You certainly, even at 13 years old, I imagine that, you know, I don't want to say the extremism of your injury, but you know that it's bad. It's really bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, in that moment, when I looked at my arm, uh, my first thought was I'm going to have a badass scar around my arm. Mm-hmm. That'll be a cool story. Yeah. To tell. Right. That was my first thought. Like I knew it was bad, but that was my first thought. Mm-hmm. And then we waited, we waited for this ambulance to get here, this volunteer crew and they showed up and in the ambulance when my mom was with me was when I really started to realize that like, I didn't understand the sensation of where my arm was. I thought my arm was laying like bent over laying outside of my body, like out to the side of the, of the, the bed I was laying on in the ambulance, but it was on my lap. I thought they had like an IV bag laying on my lap and I looked down and I was like, Oh, that's my arm. Like I thought my arm was over there. So that, in that moment, in my mind, I was like, whoa, this is weird that I feel every bit of my brain tells me my arm's over there and it's right here. It was that first moment of phantom sensation, ultimately.
0: And you have that, I've seen this many times and I've heard you talk about this, um, that's when you kind of have the first realization, what if I lose my arm? Yes. And I love that... um, I guess you you look at your mom and say, and actually ask her, what if I lose my mom? Or excuse me, what if I lose my arm? And what does she say to you in response?
1: Yeah, so her response was the most profound statement that sticks with me to this day. And She looked at me without skipping a beat, didn't ponder it long, didn't like coat my head and tell me it would be okay. She just looked at me and said, Logan, it's just an arm. And that phrase, it's just an arm, immediately when she said it, and I was beginning to unfold in my head. Well, what if I'd lose it? I won't be able to do this. This is gonna be hard. I'll never do this again. As those thoughts were starting to creep into my brain and I asked my mom that question, mom, what if I lose my arm? As I'm thinking about these thoughts with that response of Logan "It's just an arm immediately hushed those thoughts. Yeah. Immediately made me say, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, if I live, that'd be cool. Like I, I didn't realize death is a consideration, but at the end of the day, it's always a consideration. It it could happen at any time. Uh, so my brain immediately switched into this, like, appreciation mode, this abundance mode. Um, and then I was, I was like, you know what? It is just an arm. Like if I lose it, got another one, like everything will be different, but it won't be gone. Right. Like everything won't be gone. Um, and yeah, without a doubt, you know, that's, the hashtag I use all the time, it's a statement I say to myself often to remind myself when uh, I'm in a negative headspace, when I'm, I'm in a challenging scenario or struggling to accomplish a task and getting frustrated, the phrase is, it's just an arm." And we all have the ability to identify phrases like that. Sure. It's just changing the way in which we're processing information or an event or uh, a scenario. It's just switching your brain from one place and what's is processing to another. Uh,
0: And I imagine that your mom had to do that for herself too, you know, because she's sitting there watching her son and, and she's got to change her mindset around it. Right. So it's important for her to say those words, not just for you to hear them, but for her to hear them. Like it's just an arm. My son is still here. He is still talking to me. Um, It's just an arm and we'll figure it out. And I think. There's something so profound, yet so incredibly simple about that statement. And I love it. It's just, and it can change your reaction uh, to a situation in an instant. And it did for you. Um, and, and it changed the way that you moved forward. You know, you ultimately lost your arm. Um, and there was a choice there for a second, right? The, the idea that you could potentially keep it, but it would be a, a long road and, a lot of unknowns and, and you guys yeah. made the decision to,
1: to amputate. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, there were options for sure. Um, nothing guaranteed as anything in the medical field, but like they were considering playing out scenarios and it was a little bit more than 50% likely that it would, they would be able to rehab and in three, or four years time. Uh, now today's medical technology from where that was 15, 16 years ago, um, I think, it would have been a much easier decision. Honestly, I think they would have been able to save it Mm -hmm. quite uh, more confidently than they were able to say then. Um, But even with that being said, I'm so thankful mine happened when it did. I'm so thankful that that uh, probability was expressed to my parents the way it was. And I'm so thankful that my parents knew me, knew who I was and knew how critical these years for me were going to be. And going from 13, maybe to 15 or 16, dealing with a ton of surgeries and a ton of hospital visits, trying to hold on to some hope of having this limb again, uh, was I think a very scary path to potentially go down. And I think my parents knew my personality and how I like the black and whiteness of it's gone. We're amputating it. It's gone. Let's move on. Um, and that was the theme around all that. It was like, let's just let Logan move on. Um, and that's the decision that they made. And you know, without a doubt, never have I questioned or wondered what life would be like if they had chosen the latter, uh, without a doubt, it's the best decision they ever made. And I would have made the same one.
0: Yeah. And you talk about too, what, one of the things I love that you talk about as you said that even losing an arm as a te- teenager, you haven't faced that much struggle in your life. And you know, it's interesting for you to frame it that way, right? Because almost anyone looking from an outsider's perspective may call like your bluff on that. Like, what's different about your perspective? You know, I I, I told you I have a I have a 14-year-old daughter and she's amazing and she's super resilient and and but she deals with 14-year-old teenage girl stuff. Right. And so like something that I can look at as being so small, her world is ending, you know, and, and I'm always, I I will always look my kids in the eye, even my six-year-old and I say, I'll just look at them and say perspective, like perspective. And they need to understand that. And I don't want to discount their, their teenage problems. I remember them when I was a teenager and the things that were really important to me, but like, As long as, again, getting back to what your mom said, like, it's just an arm. Like, have perspective on the situation and move forward. What what is different about your perspective as you walked through that, as you, you know, losing your limb um, and as you were facing that? I always talk to people about this idea that, you know, certainly you're like, hey, it was arms gone, move on. But there had to be some challenges along the way that wasn't just, all right, I lost my arm and, you know, let's get back out there on the wakeboard. Like there had to be challenges. How did you deal with those challenges and how did you put them into perspective to move forward?
1: Yeah. Great question. I love that you asked this because it is very true. And um, I just know (laughs) there's always someone that has it worse. Like in terms of perspective, you know, just before I really answer the question, when I was first, after the amputation, the first thing I did for the four or five nights I was in ICU, is I pretended that they amputated my leg too. I just pretended. I just pretended like my arm and my leg on this side was gone. So that when I went to the bathroom, I had to hop, I had to hold the IV thing and hop on one leg because it instantly made it not so bad. Like it was instant reminder of it could, it could have been worse. And I'm very aware that I am extremely privileged. Like I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, going to a prestigious private school, first grade through 12th grade. This happened in the middle of that. I was surrounded by the most remarkable family, peer, professor, support group. I had 50 people waiting in the ICU waiting room to come see me. I had endless support, believers, and encouragement. That is so underappreciated often when individuals who don't have that wonder why they perceive their crisis, their challenge differently than how I do. I am well aware it's because I'm privileged. I'm privileged to have had a remarkable support group and network to instill the psychological perspective I have now, to recognize this isn't so bad, to realize it could have been much worse um, and have that gratitude. Um, Now, I didn't just, yeah, say, "Okay, arms off, cool. All right, now I'm going to go learn how to play lacrosse and just wakeboard one arm." No. <laughs> there was there was when they told me, um, when they pulled me out of out of surgery where they're trying to save the arm and they're like, "Logan, we have to amputate." My very first thought, and I don't know why this is, but I just I just remember it vividly, was how am I going to play lacrosse? Very first thought. Not at all. It was not my narrative was never I'm not going to be able to. My narrative was never, well, there goes that, I can't do that. It was always, how am I going to be able to dot, dot, dot. And so for me, it was an extreme amount of excitement to like, this is a new normal. There's going to be a new, every moment of the day is going to be a new challenge. Brushing your teeth. That's different. All right, let's figure this out. And then let's ingrain that in my brain and make that my new normal, make that the way I do things from now on. Um, But you know, one moment, that I had in the hospital of like tremendous grief. Like I, re- I broke down and cried. Uh, and I think it's important to state that because I've never had that moment since. Um, and you can't not have that moment. You cannot just c- bottle that up and just say, don't worry about that part. All right, arm's gone. It's just an arm. Let's go, boom, boom, boom. Let's move on. No, you have to take a moment and check in and be sad. Like grief, grief is a critical stage to the long-term success of recovery and advancement and fulfillment after uh, a tragic accident or injury and anybody in any perspective, psychological, right. physical, whatever you got, you got to be sad. You got to be sad. And that came about for me in a way of really sadness, but with gratitude. And it was while reading, this is, you know, 2004. Uh, Facebook wasn't really that popping. It was all about care pages, carepages.com. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys yeah, remember those, of but you know, uh, that's what we used. And you know, I'm a 13 year old kid in the summer going from seventh grade to eighth grade and remind you this rebellious punk who's, you know, typically not very in tune with his emotions and telling his friends that he loves hanging out with them. You know, I was typically like, all right, see you dude or whatever. Right. And here I am <laughs> with my mom reading through these care page comments from 13 year old boys, my friends telling me how sorry they are that they weren't there when it happened to help me, how sad they feel and guilty that they're at summer camp and they're not able to be here at the hospital and how they love me and how uh, I miss you. And I can't wait to see you when I come back from camp. When I, when I It gives me goosebumps when I think about this stuff, because that was uh, <sighs> kids aren't supposed to have to be that strong and support each other. Right. And yet my friends decided to, and they did. And again, I'm so fortunate to have this sort of social network and peer network at that age of my life, but it made it hit really hard. Reading my friend, hearing my friend's grief made me think, whoa, like, wow, I really am going to be different. Like I'm this, when you see me, when I'm introduced to anyone, I'm going to be different forever. Yeah, And that was a tough, thing to consider. And as I read through these and my mom and I cried for 10, 15 minutes, cried of appreciation, cried of, wow, this is true. My friends will see me differently, but they're so sorry and empathetic though. So it's almost encouraging at the same time. Um, But it was the the grief hit hardest. After reading these, I had to go to the bathroom and I hopped into the bathroom. And it was the first time, because that day, early in that day, the amputation happened. It was the first time I looked at myself in the mirror. And when I saw myself in the mirror, for me, at that age, my perspective and lack of understanding or exposure to people with disabilities before that in my life, yeah, I saw myself in the mirror and I thought I was a freak. I instantly just thought, well, I am now, if I saw this person, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but it's the truth. I am now the type of person that I saw that I thought was like less than, I thought was like a disease had happened to them, something crazy, you know, a young kid who was an idiot. Like I had negative association with people with disabilities and that was my, and I saw myself and I'm like, I am one of those people. And I just could not believe it. Uh, and again, that was, that was a moment of, uh, like a, I don't want to call it depression, but a a deep realization of like, damn, this is kind of sad. Uh, not how I saw things going.
0: Yeah. And you, you know, I think it's, I think you touched on an important point and that is like, listen, this podcast is called The Resilient Life. I've dealt with a lot of tragedy in my life and and I know that, uh, you know, struggle is the antecedent of growth. Like in order for us to grow as individuals, we have to go through hard things, but it's important for people to understand, even, you know, you're out there, you're pounding, you're doing such incredible things. Like i I talk about what it means to live a resilient life. That doesn't mean there's not struggle behind it. That doesn't mean there's not hard times. And I think it's so important to bring those moments out. Uh, so people understand, yeah, I can talk about 95% of the time. I've got a positive attitude and a positive outlook, but listen, there's going to be 5% of the time that it's going to be crappy and, you're going to be down on yourself and you're going to be down on your situation, but that's, that's being human. And yeah. anybody like, that tells you that, it, that they don't deal with that sometimes, I, I don't, I don't think they're being truthful. I'll put it that exactly.
1: way. Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and so, well, let me ask you because um, how you picked up that lacrosse stick again, because I, I played lacrosse in college My dad played lacrosse in college. My daughter is working her way through, you know, all she wants to do is play lacrosse. So lacrosse runs very deep in my family. And it's funny when you said that, like, I feel like that's, that's the type of thought my, my 14 year old would have. Well, wait, not how am I going to brush my teeth? Not how am I going to brush my hair? Like, how am I going to play lacrosse again? So. I'm going to imagine you played lacrosse again because you didn't say I may not play lacrosse again. It was, how am I going to do it? And just talk through how you pick up that stick and how you take that first step. And, and, you know, I'd imagine that you have to find support somewhere from, I don't know, individuals that are, are also missing an arm. And I I don't know, like I'm thinking that there has to be more to it than you just
1: figuring it out on your own. Right. I mean, honestly, unfortunately, uh, this probably isn't good for the podcast, but no, there's not. Okay. (laughs) All right. No, but, but I will explain, you know, um, my, it was a cute, it was a daunting undertaking the thought of how am I going to throw catch and shoot with one hand? Mm -hmm. Uh, I scoured the internet and did not find an example. There were not one-arm lacrosse players that existed. <laughs> I understood quickly after my amputation that for the rest of my life, if I want to do anything active, this arm is going to have to be very fit. Right. It's going to be strong, it's gonna be have endurance, stamina, grip strength, all these things. So I was, and I was left-handed. So my dominant oh, ditto. arm was amputated. So I was trying to, yeah. Lefties, unicorns. <laughs> and so I was trying to figure out What's most important? Well, dexterity. So I had my friend buy me and bring into the hospital the Chinese like meditation balls Uh that you just roll around in your palm. And I just nonstop, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards all day long. So
0: you're already doing this in the hospital. Like you're already thinking about how I'm getting my, okay, okay.
1: This is day one ICU. I had this friend bring that in. Wow. And then day two, my brother brought in a grip trainer. So just the very traditional yeah. spring loaded grip trainer. And I would do sets of a hundred and, and I mean, after a hundred, I literally wouldn't be able to like hold a cup to drink water, <laughs> but I would just, you know, very pampered when you're in the hospital, yeah. like, somebody give me some water yeah. and, but I would just wreck my grip on purpose. Cause I knew I said, this is the, this, this arm I've always underutilized. It's your non-dominant arm. I said, now it's the only one I got. So let, let's get to know each other really well. So I just, and again, I was told I wouldn't be able to write. I would told I was told by uh, teachers and by the doctors that like writing would take years to redevelop. So it was my mom's birthday while I was in the hospital. So I like wrote her a handwritten thank you or birthday card and saying thank you for all of her time spent in the hospital. And I mean, you could barely read it, but she she actually did. She was able to read it. Uh, it was it was just another step for me realizing like these things, these expectations people are going to put on me and the ones I'm going to put on myself with needing strength and dexterity of this arm. um, I was immediately thinking that it wasn't like, okay, let me just see how this feels. Let me see what it's like to be with one arm. No, I was like, okay, it's gone. And one arm is now the new normal. How do we make this? How do we make this function and work right? How do I get ahead of the ball? So when I'm get out of this place, I'm ready to go back to being Logan. I'm not going back to being this patient who's going through rehab and doing these things. Like I want to fast track this thing as well as I can. Um, so lacrosse, you know, that came about from uh, first eye coordination. So when I got out, I'm not kidding. Like the, the, I don't, I wouldn't, I couldn't call it work ethic. Cause it wasn't like, I was like, I got to get up and do this every day, but every day, seven to nine hours of pain pong every day, uh, over that summer. Ping pong, uh, well, I just love ping pong, honestly. I don't even know. But (laughs) in hindsight, I think I can look back and say that that helped a lot with developing hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Some dexterity stuff and just, you know, working with the wrist and the little paddle and all that. It was just a lot that I was rewiring for myself. And then from there, I was so fortunate at the time. I had like my best friend who just lived with me, lived every night, stayed with me, by my side, his name's Max Miller. And this dude, he he would never like, and he was never around me like, what do you need Logan? What do you need? He's just being a bro, yeah. just being a friend who was always there. Like nothing else mattered, he was always there. And so lacrosse, he was like, let's go throw, let's throw. And so he would spend the six, seven hours with me a day trying to throw where we'd throw for 10 minutes and my arm would get so fatigued, we'd need a rest for 20. And we'd throw for another 10 and then rest. And I'd try to learn how to throw this way and balls going all over the place and he's having to chase them. But it was work. It was just the putting the time in in order to get comfortable with this, this new situation. Uh, I went to, like, football summer training camps because I was like, I got to get into fitness. I need to go to these camps. And it was at my school. So I just joined. And there were some, you know, events or things they were doing. Like, I can't do that. That's like, I'm not ready for that. But I tried to do as much as I could. Um, and that was me, that was me being overly aggressive yeah. because the result was my bone b- busted through the muscles that they had sutured and my amputation. So I had to go back to the hospital and get more bone removed because oh I was too gosh. active. Yeah. So it was, it was actually uh, a little bit retroactive, but, but yeah, that was my approach. It was, um, un, un like, I, I kind of am shocked that I saw or I was lucky enough to have put together the progressions from like hand-eye coordination to dexterity to develop the strength so that when I picked up that lacrosse stick, when I went back to try to hold that wakeboard handle and ride again, um, I wasn't limited by my physical grip strength, by my, the anatomy of the one arm I had and its ability to produce power for me. I wasn't limited by that. Um, so that was huge for me. And I knew that was going to be a factor and I never wanted that to be a limiting cause. So that was a, a good reminder that this stuff is important. Training is important for me. I mean,
0: I'm trying to comprehend like you're talking about it now and I get it, but I'm trying to think back to a 13 year old kid is having these thoughts. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound, you know? And I think that, clearly your parents played a big role in instilling that mindset in you pre-accident because you, you, I don't want to say you, you were prepared, but in some way you were prepared. You were prepared to take on something like this and, and move forward.
1: Um, Well, my mom's amazing, but she's, she's, she's a tough cookie. Like she's not, uh, we weren't pampered as kids. Yeah. Like we was, you know, you mess up, then you better be fearful of mother, not, not father. Like mother <laughs> will put you, put you in line. Uh, so, and my brother, I had an older brother and you know, like most older brothers gave me really tough skin at that young age, you yep. know? Uh, and so I was constantly being reminded, and this isn't a negative thing it's from a positive place, but like no one cares about my problems. I was constantly being reminded as a young kid he stole this toy or he did this. Like, well, you better go talk it out. You better go figure it out. So it was like, this was just another, it was an, it was a thing that happened. Another thing you had to figure out. Yeah. It wasn't a thing. You turn to your parents and you say, mom, dad, this happened. How fix me. How do you make life better for me? No, it was like, it was happening to me, me and only me. Like I have to figure this out. Uh, I appreciate my parents support. They were there the whole time, uh, always, but, I always reiterated, do not lend me helping hands. Do not see me struggling and try to help me. Right. Let me ask for the help. And I'm very stubborn, so I probably won't. Let me struggle. Let me struggle a lot. Uh, And that was really important. I remember the first day of school in eighth grade, uh, you know, middle school, rumors, kids talking, all that mess. Going back to school, I remember just realizing that people were some people knew exactly what happened and some people had no idea. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. And again, I went to this small private school, like the whole eighth grade class was like 80 kids. So I I told the principal, I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Have everyone meet in our, we had morning meetings and stuff. I was like, have everyone in the morning meeting sit. And I'd like to talk for a second. He was like, are you sure? I was like, yes, I need to, I need to tell you about what happened. And to me, it wasn't even like, it wasn't nervousness. It wasn't, Oh, I'm going to get in front of the, my whole grade and talk and all. I was just like, no, 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 no. This needs to be addressed immediately. And I got up there and I said, Hey guys, I'm Logan. Y'all know me. I know all y'all look, I don't have an arm. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Uh, over the summer, this is what happened. I told them exactly in detail. Like I've just told you on this podcast, exactly what happened. Uh, and then I said that and I said, I'm all good. I'm all good. Like exact same Logan that you saw last year. He's just missing an arm but like same jokes, I like the same jokes, I like the same music, I like the same food, like I'm the same person. So don't treat me differently. And my biggest message to them was like, don't treat me like I'm disabled. Don't hold doors open for me. Don't ask, and I know it it would all come from a place of love and kindness from you all. So it's me asking you to be a little uncomfortable with me and not helping. Like let me figure this out, Um, treat me the same. Uh, and that was the most important thing I ever did for my own psychological um, recovery with my peer network and my school.
0: I think that's such a such a cool concept. And, you know, I, I dealt with that a little when when my brother was killed. I had people that were like kid glove around me, you know, the people that used sure. to give me crap all the time. And we had this very like fun banter always kidding around with each other and all of a sudden they were like you know how are you Ryan and I'm like whoa whoa that's not who you are to me like right and and it was my friends that were just like normal with me like that that didn't try to sugarcoat anything that got me through and that made me feel that sense of normalcy because when people start acting differently towards you you start to feel different right and you start to feel like okay, um, yeah, everybody is watching me and everybody is like, you need that normalcy around you. So I totally understand that. Totally get that. Um, you talk about, uh, I want to, I want to get into, I want to get into all the cool stuff that you've done athletically, but you talk about something that I saw in, um, and I mentioned this to you before anxiety. And you talk about this idea of anxiety and that, um, you don't, I don't know if you, you actually say you don't fully believe in it, but, um, I'd love to see how you frame anxiety because I, I definitely dealt with what I have been told from therapists is anxiety, a post-traumatic, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from the loss of my brother and um, it came with some anxiety that for, for me was crippling. And um, and I talk about when I in my book, I, I talk about this one night where I had this massive panic attack where I literally thought I was dying. Um, and I rolled over to my husband and I said, uh, I, I think I'm dying. You have to take me to the hospital. And he turned to me and he's like, go to bed. You're fine. And when I reflect back on that, I think about had my husband fed into my fears and the anxiety that I was feeling at that time. And he said, if he would have gotten up and been like, okay, get your stuff together. Let's get in the car. That would have been made it a thousand times worse. Mm -hmm. But by nature of him saying, you're fine. Close your eyes. Go to bed. It was almost, it was almost like your mom saying to you, it's just an arm. Where all yeah. of a sudden I was like, okay, yeah. Because he, he said, you're telling me you're not breathing, but you're sitting here talking to me. You're clearly breathing just fine. And I was like, oh, yeah, I am. But I also believe that that feeling, that sensation I was feeling, it was a real thing. And um, But I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about your like mindset, your, your opinions about anxiety, and yeah. um, a little bit more.
1: Absolutely no. This is a perfect segue from what I was just talking about. Uh, talking to the student body, the eighth graders, like I wasn't. I didn't get the butterflies. You know, I went on to be a professional motivational speaker, and I've sp- spoken in front of many audiences. And this is when I started to come up, cultivate this idea of what is anxiety, how do we interpret it, what does it mean, uh, and yeah, my my belief is that. Anxiety is real. It's not that I don't believe in anxiety. I'm certain it's real, but it's manifested in our mind. Obviously it's, it's manifested by the way in which we perceive how our body's reacting. Mm-hmm. So before I give a speech, you get the butterflies, you know, like you just feel it in your chest and all that starts to happen. But this is the same sensation that I got when I was wakeboarding or when I was skateboarding and about to try to jump like 12 stairs. Uh, maybe that is anxiety. Maybe I'm twisted and like messed up with my wiring. But I instead interpret that as excitement. I interpret that as energy and like, what are we going to do with this energy? And it can manifest and and I've had freak out moments too, where I'm in my head and I'm overanalyzing things and I've gone down a really dark rabbit hole. I'm in a bad place, Mm -hmm. but I have to just change the narrative in my brain. I have to change the narrative of why my body is creating these physiological responses. Why am I short of breath? Why is my heart rate up? Why is, am I getting like tunnel vision in on this stuff? And when I start to think about, when I start to change my narrative and it's, it might've been triggered from stress or from an unforeseen uh, deadline that just popped up, I didn't realize, but it's just the story we tell ourselves. It's the it, at the core of it. It's the power of choice in which we see these things come up in our lives and how they come up in our brains. When we remember them, when they come up cognitively, if it triggers a negative response then it starts then that's a ripple effect your whole perception of it is negative so it is it's anxiousness Mm because you're anxious about what the outcome is going to be because it's very it's heavy and it's negative so i think it's uh simply put it's just the way in which we perceive the stresses happening within our body and the stresses that we perceive happening externally outside of our body i view them as exciting opportunities i just say that like before something happens, an unforeseen event happens, or I remember a very sad experience and it starts to cause negative thoughts. Why does that have to be ingrained in my head as a sad experience? What can I take from that moment or that uh, memory and create a positive narrative? It's the narratives that dictate our, our literal physical health and our mental health that we're telling ourselves. Uh, If we, it's, It's the old saying of if you're uh, looking for red cars, you'll see red cars all over the road, right? And as soon as you're not, you just feel like there's no red cars ever on the road. So it's (laughs) uh, what you ask for, what you put out there is what you get. I, I put out that, you know, anxiousness, elevated heart rate, feeling like there's something in my throat. This is excitement. This is a good thing. We need to do something with this. And oftentimes I'll take physical action. I'll just start going for a run, start going for a walk, start doing some burpees. Like I like to take things to a bit of the extreme. So I'll typically translate that into like, let's hit fitness really hard right now. and um, that's how my body, um, translates that as like excitement.
0: Yeah. And I, and I agree with that 100%. I always say, um, you know, growing up my dad, um, If I was, my dad felt that all ailments of the mind could be healed with physical activity. So if I was in a bad place, my dad would say, we'll just go for a run. And I didn't realize till I got older, the actual chemical makeup that, that it does help that that physical activity does help. I do believe along with that, some people need a combination of that therapy medication. You know, there, there's a lot of things out there and, and I don't want to, gauge anybody's um anxiety versus mine versus yours you know there's there's different level there's different manifestations that it takes but but no one can discount the importance of um of the physical fitness playing a role in helping with your mental state and so i want to talk about you competing and i have this you're 160 pounds um, you're only 29 years old, you're missing an arm and you deadlift 500 pounds and, yeah, and you can overhead lift 200 pounds and you can s- squat clean 250 pounds. I yeah. mean, you read that if, if, if that paragraph was just in front of me and said, Hey, this is uh." This is a 29-year-old, 160-pound kid who is missing an arm, and this is what he can do. I'd, I'd say, bull crap. that no, we can't, you know? And, and I think most people would. So you're the 13-year-old kid in the hospital that's spinning medicine balls, and then you're the 29-year-old guy who's doing this. How do you get to that place? And how yeah. do you, I think... How do you get to that place? But also, how do you, how do you know your limitations, right? That you can, that you can get to this place. Um, I think that's even more interesting because this is, this is a feat for a, hundred sixty pound, twenty nine year old with two arms, right? So how do you take that and exceed
1: it? You know. <laughs> very simply put, I take a lot out of the, the, the story of Forrest Gump. Like, I am very curious about the unknown, about like what happens if, you know, running is the greatest example in terms of, we know exactly what happens if we don't take the next step. If we stop running, you know, but exa- know exactly what happens. Your heart rate starts to lower, you begin to recover and you, you, everything's fine. Yeah. So what happens if you don't stop? What happens if you continue? I didn't do it with running. I did it with general fitness. Yeah. I did it with uh, a principle of, okay, I'm going to be this way for the rest of my life. Fitness in lifting weights, being strong. It's going to be important for me to have just a standard able-bodied quality of life. And, and that's all I was really going after in the beginning. So in high school, it was like very attentive to strength and conditioning, but it was just for, GPP. It was just to be fit. I mean, I was playing lacrosse and I wanted to excel at that too, but I didn't have my eyes set on becoming a professional athlete of any sort or anything like that. I just knew what I needed to do to be functional. Um, went into college and in college, uh, again, like fitness has always been a part of my life. It always will be like, I am so, I think I have ADHD. I don't know. I'm all (laughs) over the place. And like, I got to stay moving. I got to do stuff. I got to do something. So fitness is just an amazing outlet for me. And I think I'm a creator at my heart. I like being, um, just finding a problem and trying to create a solution. Uh, so for me in fitness with one arm, there was endless opportunities to do that. So I, in college was lifting with my buddies, you know, we'd go into the weight room and just work out and I would try to incorporate my prosthetic I had at the time. And I wasn't creating any sort of like specific fitness equipment. I was just trying to use stuff I already had prosthetics to, lift symmetrically and whatnot. And, and I love surfing. So, you know, I was like, all right, I'm surfing with one arm. I I better make sure this arm and my back and the shoulder is super well strong and stamina and good conditioning and all this stuff. So spent a lot of time just in the gym, uh, working out. And it wasn't until I graduated and was fortunate enough to get a, a, an awesome job working for uh, a really great company back here in Raleigh, big IT company. Um, was getting into that routine of like, all right, you do what you do, graduate college, get this great degree, get a great job, start going. Um, uh, and that was working out well, uh, until I realized that this, I could easily see this being this, this is your life this is what happens. You do this, find this someone, marry and do all this stuff. And that scared the crap out of me. And I was like, I cannot sit in a cubicle every day and do this sort of stuff. Uh, and I was really missing the camaraderie I had with my friends in the weight room yeah. in college. Uh, I didn't think I, I didn't think that really mattered. I always just took that for granted, but I was going to, you know, like a, a typical globo gym and nobody talks to anybody. Everybody's got headphones on. You get on <laughs> the elliptical, do your thing, go over there do your thing. And, uh, I'm not a social butterfly, but like in fitness, I want to talk. I want to, I'm used to training with a team. I used to training with friends. Like that's really important to me. And I didn't know that before until yep. it was taken away. Uh, so then I said, okay, what is all this CrossFit stuff about? And that was when I first, uh, exposed myself to, uh, trying out CrossFit and I didn't like go to CrossFit gyms at first. I just look up on my phone different CrossFit workouts and i would just try to do them in the YMCA. People looking at me like I'm crazy <laughs> trying to do all this stuff with one arm. Uh, but I just, I would just try. And every time I would do them, I'll be like, that was without a doubt, the hardest workout I've ever done. Like, holy crap. I did not know that fitness could be that hard. Um, and I was, I was attracted to that. Like I was attracted to the discomfort. I was attracted to the pain. I was attracted to the unknown, the unknowable of the fitness. I was attracted to the philosophy of virtuosity, like being commonly good or being uncommonly good at the common. And so like these ideas and functional movements of like I've got to hinge. Like I've got to squat always for the rest of my life. I'll need to be able to squat. I'm super thankful that I have sound able-bodied legs. So I want to utilize those things. I want to run. I want to squat heavy. I want to do play sports and be active. Um, the more I started to want to do these things and be exposed to this challenge that that is or was CrossFit, whatever you want to call it, CrossFit's a brand, call it functional fitness. You call it high intensity interval training, call it whatever you want. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get into that. I wanted to try, uh, I wanted to be told here's the workout today and me have to figure it out. We have to figure out how to make that work for me. Um, and that's what I did. And gosh, that's been just over five years of just, uh, testing, testing fitness on myself, whether it's go run a half marathon or try to deadlift as much weight as you can. Um, my exposure and my curiosity to create solutions for myself immediately translated into wanting to create solutions for others with disabilities. Uh, I left, when I left my job in corporate America working for this IT company, I started my own, what I'd studied in college was I was in business school and I uh, additionally studied additive manufacturing or 3d printing. And I was obsessed with the application, the business application of this technology to orthotics and prosthetics. So I had my experience with orthotics and prosthetics, and then in college I learned a lot about that industry and then about how 3D printing can help it. So I started a consulting company, and I thought this was—I thought this is what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I'm this amputee who's really active, can do all these fun things. Tell you my story. You're a new amputee. There's hope. There's awesome stuff out there for you whether it's a prosthetic or whether it's just like how life can work for you now. I have abundant resources of forks with blades on the sides and cutting boards for people with one arm. Like, you know, I was just like, there's so much cool stuff for you now. <laughs> uh, leg amputee, arm amputee, whatever. So um, I was a bit enlightened when I realized living in North Carolina, uh, I think this is a bit regional, but it's, it's, it's very much a, a national theme as well, but uh, exposed here a lot the patients we were seeing were not traumatic incidences. If they were, it was maybe 10% of the population. Majority was chronic disease, Yeah, typically diabetes, and mm-hmm. they'd lose a partial foot, then the complete foot, yep. and then, you know, below knee amputee. And then within five years, the other foot would start to go because no behavioral lifestyle changes would was were happening, right. regardless of the excitement and resources that I would provide. So, that's the moment when I had been testing this fitness on myself, being curious about all of this functional fitness stuff and how hard it is and how challenging it is. And my work being in the prosthetic orthotic and prosthetic space and the patients I was seeing, I said, I'm trying to solve a problem at the end. Uh, The, 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 the place to solve this is in the lifestyle behavioral changes. The place to solve this is access to the fitness. And so that's when I left my consulting company and went full-time on just working on myself and recruiting people with disabilities to let me train them. I'm not an exercise science major. I'm not a certified personal trainer. I'm just willing to try and, and constantly listen. And people were very open to that.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, this idea of coming at it from a preventative standpoint, as opposed to, you know, you, the problem's too far gone at the point where probably a majority of the cases of amputees specific to your region but again from a national perspective too so so you start the adaptive training academy
1: yeah well that's you know ata yeah adaptive training academy i'll refer to it as ata uh is really only one year's one year old the company itself so
0: but born from social- born from years of everything that you're doing leading up to it
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But in the, you know, we identified a huge need. We were in myself and a few other adaptive athletes, different ranges, seated athletes, lower extremity, um, combat wounded veterans. There's a really close group of combat combat wounded veterans who were the OGs of like adaptive athletes in the CrossFit world. Um and it was quickly identified from us as individuals and the, the community of people with disabilities but more so, frankly, from the brand, the company of CrossFit, they were like, we're not doing a good job here. We're not inclusive. These people want to do fitness um, and CrossFit prides themselves on education and all this, and they weren't doing anything. So they turned to us and said, there's a need. You guys are the experts. Can you make a education out of this? Um, so that's when we started to develop my business partner, Alex Zirkenbach, a 10 year Naval officer, medically retired. Um, he, he, Came together with me. He was out in San Diego working with the maybe Balboa Medical Hospital, mm-hmm. um, working with patients there. And we started to develop curriculum, looking at this big picture of, like, what is an adaptive athlete? Let's define it. Let's apply definitions. Let's clarify nomenclature. Let's set up general principles of safety, effectiveness, and inclusivity in fitness group training. And we just started to just continue to develop this curriculum. Um, and trust me, I I, I – I, I never thought that I would be developing education to give to people. I am not the sharpest tool in the shed, but somehow uh, through just extreme obsession and relentless practice, uh, we've come to really great practical education that is applicable to the person with the disability, if they wanna know, the coach that coaches a sports team or maybe even just a, a complete like Paralympic sport the trainer that coaches at a gym, a globo gym, is a personal trainer, runs a CrossFit gym, whatever, or uh, a therapist and a physician, those who directly deal with individuals who are new to an injury and rehabilitate them into civilian life or just quality daily living. Um, All of those individuals benefit from our education because – you know, what I do, as you said, when you're reading those stats on me and, and 500 or whatever, it pales in significance compared to the functional ability we've been able to create through people with disabilities training this way, yep. using functional fitness to train. We've taken T12 paraplegics and given them the ability to transfer in and out of their chair when that was a terrifying, impossible feat before. And the function that comes from that, the same function that comes from an able-bodied individual, standing individual, being able to get up off the ground if they fall over is life changing. So it's rooted in that, in the simplistic of terms or ways it's rooted in activities of daily living. How do we just live daily? And then on top of that is virtuosity. So how do we just excel at that so much that it expands our fitness? And that's, that's all that we're doing. And I think, you know,
0: it kind of gets back to when you were the 13 year old kid lying in the hospital bed and trying to Google, how do I do this? How do I do that? And seeing that not a lot of those resources were out there and available. And, and, and you listen, our society today, in the best way possible, there is a, I don't think there's, there's certainly not been a time in my life where physical fitness has been more prevalent, and more important, and more highlighted. Um, and so, you know, you look at that from that perspective, and, and listen, I read those stats because they're important, not because of the, whoa, it's 500 pounds, but they're important in in showing, number one, what you can achieve. And, and like you said, I love this idea that the discomfort almost becomes this obsession for how much further can I push it? And I know that feeling. I felt that feeling before when I've done things that I did not believe that my body could do. And, and once you taste it, you're like, oh my gosh, like, okay, what, what else can I do? Right. Um, and the idea that you can bring this approach to not, I love that it's an integrated approach, that it's not a, this is where adaptive athletes train, right? This is right, this is right. their s- sector and then all the rest of us are over here. It's like how do we bring it all together? And I think that's so beautiful um and and so needed. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's it's looking trying to look from the 10,000 foot view at like the real problem. Uh not nationally, but like globally, what mm-hmm. is the issue? Mm-hmm. Why don't we I mean Statistically in the U S one in four people have a permanent disability. So why don't we know of, or see out and about one in four people in a wheelchair or having a prosthetic using some ambulatory device, you don't see them because disability is curated out of the environment and our environment is lack of access. So yes, we do have ADA compliance and yes, there are handicapped parking spaces, but especially when it comes to health and wellness and pursuing fitness, we're not accessible uh generally speaking globally so that's the the big mission that we're on to make the world more inclusive and accessible for all abilities uh, to partake in fitness and ultimately pursue health and wellness and if you give that opportunity to this population this minority population just in the US that's 61 million people that's a billion people national i mean uh globally mm-hmm. Uh, that's the biggest population that needs this in order to increase their quality of life, independence and functionality. And additionally, you can relate this to people who are uh, morbidly obese. Like it's a similar situation. Sure. It's not a permanent, there are are definitely medical conditions that create that for many individuals, but think about the lack of access for that person. And they have the same limitations when it comes to, I'd like to get fit. There's a lot to consider. It's not just their sole willpower to let's move every day. And I'm very aware of that. And through our time as a, as a company and an education resource, we've been exposed to that. And we've helped a lot of people that might not have adaptive needs per se in terms of being uh, permanently disabled, but have identified with our education and its, in, in its application uh, because of their population of obese individuals or people that are very overweight and discouraged from trying fitness. Our approach, our methodology, and our principles are uh, applicable in that regard as well. So it continues to just create more democratization of fitness and making it just accessible. Everyone should have it. It shouldn't be because you can afford this level of fitness, you get a better option than this person who can't. So uh, that's the mission we're on.
0: I love it. So Adaptive Training Academy, we're going to have that linked, um, on underneath on our YouTube, um, for everybody, but at, adaptive adaptivetrainingacademy.com. Um, make sure you guys check it out. It's, um, it's awesome. I'm I, I think it's super cool and, um, so, so needed. Um, 100%. Uh, I have some friends that I want to pass it on to, um, in case they're, they're not aware of it. And, you know, it's a young company, but, uh. I think a lot of legs for a lot of different reasons. And, and you know, I always think back to the the idea of what you said, like the CrossFit, uh, functional fitness, right? CrossFit, like you said, is the brand. But this idea of functional fitness, a lot of these are just, for better lack of a word, you know, it's intimidating. And and I think if you have any sort of, anything that sets you back um, physically, that is, that can be the, the thing that puts you over the edge that just leaves you at, forget it, you know, forget it. I'm just not, this isn't for me. And right. to have this different approach, um, it's, it's, it's awesome.
1: Well, those individuals who decided to say, this is going to be hard and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I have, you know, I'm an adaptive individual and I'm going to figure this out. Um, those are you know, the mentors and the leaders for the disabled community as a whole at large. Those are the individuals who exude that grit mentality, that true resilience mm-hmm. lifestyle of like, all right, you challenge me, you push, I'll push back harder and yep. I will come back stronger. Um, and those are the champions, those are the leaders of this mission. Um, and through the cool uh, technology like social media, we're able to share those stories and show what was impossible is now very possible. And I think that is uh, a big momentum of empowerment for this population. Um, whether you're a veteran combat wounded and identifying with purpose and opportunity and not only functionality, but like a career and helping the next do the same, uh, this is all big parts of what we're trying to create so that people can thrive. Uh, you shouldn't be limited. You shouldn't struggle to find a job or a career because you have a disability, uh, you have a permanent impairment, there should be uh, abundant resources and opportunities for you to thrive. And I think when we can express that through movement, um, not only is it good and healthy for us and makes us have better lives, but it also is empowering to inspire the next and especially the next generation that grows up and starts to view people with disabilities and not at all as, less able than anybody, but just living a different normal. Yep. Awesome.
0: So Logan, your motto is beyond expectations. Uh, I've seen it, uh, quite a few times. Tell us about what you think that means and for not just adaptive athlete athletes, but for anyone who's facing some sort of trial in their lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Uh, beyond expectations, is um, kind of the keynote it, to all of the speaking engagements that I, I delivered after my accident revolved around this theme of beyond expectations. And that was my uh, my speaking company. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, people hear that and they think, okay, so exceed all expectations. So like be an overachiever, be right. a perfectionist. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> the, this is derived from my experience. You know, again, I, I alluded to this earlier, like with the writing in the hospital. Like the doctors and, and my my teachers telling me I couldn't write, I thought that was the most far fetched thing from th- the expectation for them to set on me in the hospital as I'm laying there. I was insulted that they would say that. Um, so I was, I'm so glad they did because I was exposed to what the world and life will be like now moving forward with some sort of apparent physical impairment. Uh, there's judgments going to get made immediately. And judgment that's, that's what it is for better, or for worse, they're expectations. And my definition is expectation are prejudgments that we place on ourselves and one another that typically limit potential. So beyond expectations is important reminder to exceed or pursue your fullest potential. Do not succumb to the expectation of your peers or of a teacher. You know, you might be a C student and if you got a B, they would be like, you are crushing it. Way to go. You won. You could get a freaking a plus like you can do that like it's the expectation doesn't need to be a b and and your own expectation needs to exceed any others put on you uh and i think you're the only one who should be held accountable to those and um i was just exposed constantly to different experiences of people expecting how i would do expecting me to probably not play lacrosse again Expecting me to probably maybe he'll wakeboard, but he won't qualify for a competition. Right, and I go on to win an international one. Like it's it's uh, it's expectation that drove me. Like say I can't, and I will. Like you know, tell me I won't be able to do this, and I. You just gave me every reason and fuel to to do that to to make it happen. Um, So that's what beyond expectation is. And and additionally, the benefit of that when we exceed. What is expected of us? There's a there's a really cool ripple effect that happens. People, you with, with it's it's almost a butterfly effect. You're not intentionally trying to inspire, motivate, or encourage someone else, but through your actions, they'll speak louder than any words you could say. Yeah. So through persevering over past uh, something someone expected you to be capable of persevering through, you don't have to say anything. You can just you can live the life. And you have no idea how profoundly impactful that can be for someone watching, whether it's a kid, another adult, someone going through their own struggle, oftentimes just watching and witnessing you defy the impossible or exceed expectations of yourselves or the ones that they had on you is the most motivating, encouraging uh, uh, example you can see. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what I'm always trying to do. You know, I hear it a lot. I'm a one-armed guy who lifts weights, throws them around all day on Instagram. So I get a lot of comments (laughs) like, you're super inspiring. This is awesome. Uh, I appreciate the sentiment. I appreciate people saying that, but that is not what I'm trying to do. Right. I don't want to inspire people. I want to motivate them. And I believe motivation is when we take action. Um, And I believe that's what exceeding expectation makes you want to do. Makes you want to go take action.
0: I love that. I right, really, really do. Logan, this has been awesome. I have one final question. It's the question I ask. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard I close each podcast out by asking, what does living a resilient life look like for you?
1: Well, it's really simple for me. It's just um, constantly moving forward. It's constantly making this a step forward and striving. Uh, life is will beat you down. Life will never be easy. It will constantly present a challenge. Uh, It may never manifest into something that is physical like me. Like I'm so lucky, like I got one arm. So I can just, people see me and they're like, oh, he must be resilient. He must try hard because I try to excel in these things. So I'm so lucky that I get the benefit of the doubt that way. But you know, a resilient life is just, um, gosh, sticking, sticking to moving forward. Uh, maximizing your minutes to, to make the most impact with the time that you have.
0: 100%. Logan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm about to say I'm super inspired by you, but you don't want me to say that. So I'm super motivated. Um, I want to go out there and just kind of crush something and, you know, get that, uh, get that, (laughs) Feeling of discomfort where I can go out and conquer the world. So um, hey, that's it. yeah, thanks so much. And thank you for joining us for an episode of the resilient life podcast.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure, Ryan. I do want to leave your listeners with one nugget if yes. they are trainers, coaches, therapists, or whatever interested in our education. Uh, yes, please check out AdaptiveTrainingAcademy.com or ata.fit. Actually, we just got that uh, URL as well. A lot shorter for my email address. We'll put that (laughs) one on there too. Yeah. If you want to reach out to me, Logan at ata.fit. But I would like to give all the listeners a discount code of 10% for our course. So if they want to take our course, um, let's use code uh, Travis Mannion Foundation, TMF. Perfect. TMF10. Awesome. That'll get you 10% off our course.
0: That's awesome. uh, Um, And what we'll do is uh, we'll, we'll plug that both through social media. We'll make sure we get the word out there about that for sure. Thank you. That'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Logan. Thank you. Ron. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the resilient life podcast. I loved this conversation with Logan um, and love this idea beyond expectations. And, you know, not the expectations that we set on ourselves, but sometimes the expectations that others set on us and being able to have the confidence, the belief in ourselves that even when the experts tell us, you know, this is something you're not going to be able to do, or this is something you can't achieve, uh, pushing past that and having the belief in ourselves that we can push past those barriers and those expectations that others set on us. I think this was a great conversation, one I really loved having. Uh, Thank you so much again for joining us. And please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the Resilient Life podcast with your friends.